1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord written for you. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are Sorry, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifice. Sorry, consider the people of Israel, I'm going to get this right, are not those who eat the sacrifice as participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Lord, you've spoken to us in the reading of your word. We ask that you would speak in its preaching, and we pray particularly that you would give life and light to our hearts as we deal with an exceptionally complicated subject. Uh, even this morning, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It is amazing, if you actually stop and think about how important a role genetics form in our life to think about kind of how much of who I am and how I am or who you are and how you are is really kind of set in stone from the way the Lord made us from our parents. The way that he knit us together with our DNA, the way he knit us together from the inside leaves kind of a lasting impression upon us. It's amazing the things that we have. Some of us born knew that we'd be tall most of our lives, almost certainly. Some born maybe not so much. I knew that you're probably going to be on the short end of the spectrum. It's okay. It shapes a little bit of who you are and how you are in the world around you. The interesting thing is that we tend to think of that very easily when it comes to dealing with our bodies or even sometimes dealing with our cultures. But oftentimes as Christians, we forget to think about our theological genetics, We forget to think about kind of the history that the Lord has used to bring us to the moment in time that we are currently in. We we just—it's amazing. It's like a blind spot. We just forget that theologically, I have a—I have a past. I have a history. Uh, I haven't always believed the things that I believe. And that's an extremely important idea when it comes time to talk about the sacraments. Uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and and namely because within the Reformed tradition, we're in essence kind of aiming for the Goldilocks principle. That is, if you look at kind of the history of the church as a whole, we would say there are some that take the sacraments and view them too highly and with too much power. We might put the Catholics there, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans. There are some that we would actually say maybe too cold, too low. 
your broad evangelicals, much of the American church, many, not all, but many from the Baptist tradition. And we in the Reformed camp, the Reformed tradition, Presbyterians are going to try to go again as best we can, praise God, trying for the Goldilocks principle. Not too hot, not too cold, just right, right in the middle. Now, of course, that means that that requires an immense amount of intellectual honesty and precision. And I'm going to be honest, and I know you're not going to like to hear this next part, it takes intellectual hard work. Because any time you want to hold something in balance, you want to hold something in tension, it takes effort. Because otherwise, you just get pulled in one direction or the other. Right? Many of you will go to the beach this summer. Yay, we like the beach. Some of you will go out into the water and you'll go start playing in the waves. And you remember this, if you don't actively pay attention to where you are and don't actively try to stay in the spot in which you start, where are you going to walk in when you've been playing in the water for an hour? Right? You'll be a mile down the shore. You get off and go, hey, where are mom and dad? And you have to go hoofing it down the beach to figure out where everybody is. Because without intentional effort, we get pulled in one direction or the other. Now, I start with that to say that many of us honestly have theological baggage that we are unaware of when it comes time to talk about the sacraments, and we've been pulled in one direction or the other, and we're not entirely aware, or maybe even honest, that we have been. And so we're going to come into a conversation in a Reformed church and go, I'm really confused. I never thought about it that way. That's okay. That's our job today, to hear from the Lord what he says about the sacraments. Now, first starting point where we've been dealing with this over the last several weeks has been to view these as well as the word and prayer within the confines of the means of grace, a term that is common in Reformed Christendom. It's uh, in our Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms, but it's this idea that the, the Lord uses things to communicate his grace to us. He uses things to communicate his power to us. He uses things to communicate his strength to us. Larger Catechism 154, what are the outward means? Well, these outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation, this is an interesting one, are all of his ordinances, all of them, but especially word, sacrament, and prayer, which are made effectual to the salvation of the elect. The Lord uses the word, he uses prayer, and he uses the sacraments, as well as his other ordinances, to change us to transform us, to communicate to us the benefits of redemption. You want more joy in your life, word, sacrament, prayer. You want more peace in your life, word, sacrament, prayer. You want more hope in your life, word, sacrament, prayer, because these are the outward and ordinary mechanisms that God uses to communicate the benefits of redemption. Again, my favorite illustration is, uh, as a kid, I did this, I guess it was still safe back then, I'm not too weird, I guess, but drinking from the water hose when you've been outside playing all day, right? Now they tell you it's terrible, I don't know, we didn't turn out too badly, I guess. Not excited about the hose, 
been playing out in the Carolina heat. It's 125 degrees after the humidity factor. I'm dying of thirst. I come in. I don't care about the hose. I want the water that's within the hose. But you have to have a mechanism to get it. You have to have a mechanism to drink it. That's what the water hose is. It's the outward and ordinary means of grace that communicate the benefits of Christ's redemption. Now, one of those word, sacrament, prayer, we deal with today, the sacraments. And already some of us are going, well, you're using a vocabulary word that I don't even know what it means. What are sacraments? Like, what is that? Like, what are we even talking about? I mean, if you're new to church, that is a great question. Fair enough. That's a word we never use outside of a church context. Fair enough. It's a word that historically was drawn from the idea of mystery. It's, I think, even going all the way back to the Latin in that regard, but it, it, it conveys this idea that the Lord is doing something mysteriously powerful through these physical activities. That's actually what we just confessed, didn't it? 162, this entire worship service was built for this sermon. What is a sacrament? It's an ordinance instituted by Christ to, sign, to signify and to seal those within the covenant of grace. It, it's a physical action with a spiritual reality. This is what makes sacraments different from everything else. I have lots of things that I do that are physical actions that have spiritual consequences. Right? We all have those. I can, physical action, stay up all night Saturday night. I, I can do that. I have personally found that when I do that, Sunday morning is rather miserable. Preaching in that condition is horrid. It's awful. It's a physical action. It has a spiritual consequence. Is that what we're talking about? The sacrament of staying up late. And if that's the case, boy, I am more sacramental than any of you, except for maybe one. No, it, what it, a sacrament, it's a physical action, but it doesn't have a spiritual consequence as much as it, it gives you a spiritual reality. Now, that, that's different than the sacrament of staying up late. And the sacrament of staying up late, it, it's not a sacrament at all. It's just a poor decision that has consequences. I do it all the time. This, this idea, this biblical truth is, it's a physical thing that we do that if we are in Christ, it actually gives us something spiritually. It does something. That's what makes a sacrament a sacrament, is that it, 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 it does something. Now, it specifically does something to those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They may or may not be Christians yet, honestly. Baptism specifically in that regard. But for those who are elect, those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those who are a child of God or will be a child of God, the sacraments do something. You look at that in, in 163, if you actually look in your bulletin. That's why we included the second of these two confessions. What are the, the two parts of a sacrament? Well, there's two parts. There's part one, the outward thing that you do. We put water on somebody's head or we eat grain and grape together. 
Those are the two outward signs that we do. But that's not where it stops. Because the second part is that there is an inward and spiritual grace that is actually done. It's, it's signified and it's accomplished. It's sealed to God's people. It's, it's powerful. Now, all of this is done beneath the Word of God. In fact, you could say the sacraments are a subset of the Word of God but they're powerful. They're powerful. So a couple of points just briefly that we're going to consider about the sacraments, and as I said, this sermon would be very theological and have a slightly different format than normal. Uh, First to look at is the, the sacraments, the best way to view them is the sacraments are salvation seen. They're salvation seen. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, some of us, we're going to be honest, I'm going to be, be truthful, some of us are, are wonderfully gifted people. The Lord has given us the gift of faith, and if he said it, I believe it, and it's simple as that. Some of us, however, on the other hand, really struggle, right? We are on the struggle bus of faith. We have punched that ticket, and we've been riding that ride for a really long time. In fact, actually, when we get to that Hebrews 11 passage that we read, hmm, the entire order of worship built, remember? Faith is belief in things unseen. Man, it's hard for us, some of us. When we go to read God's word and to say, I I just, how to figure out how all of this is true and how to believe it and how to believe it with a whole heart when I can't see it. And the interesting thing is that it was never designed to be unseen entirely. It was designed to be seen within very certain contexts. In fact, actually, if you were to look back at Hebrews 11, where you just read, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The interesting thing is the immediate thing that the author of Hebrews does is then turn to examples, places where we can see it. (laughs) How can I see the gospel? Well, by faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. He begins to work through ways in which we can see the gospel explained. It's, it's lived out. Now, interestingly, in the sacraments, though, there, there's something even bigger happening in that we are watching salvation in some sense be not reenacted, but, but, but displayed. The sacraments are in some fashion, they're they're gospel reenactments, but with power. You think about it, that's what what baptism is, absolutely marvelous. In baptism, water is poured on a person's head, either a child or an adult, and that is a portrait of their union with Christ, Christ. And in that moment, in in, in that activity, the name of God is placed upon them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is placed upon that person. They are marked by the Most High. They belong to God. His name is upon them. It doesn't inherently mean they're immediately a Christian. It's my favorite running gag. If 
If we believe baptism saved people like that, I would most likely be in jail because I would have bought every super soaker I could find and I would have been running up and down the mall spraying everyone I could find. And if that's all it took, me to put the name of God in water on somebody, man, I would have a field day with it. I would be in jail for assault. It most certainly would happen. We don't believe it saves them in that moment, but we believe that it's a portrait of salvation that God will then later use with power. Now, my favorite is when you see babies baptized. Because in this child, do they understand who God is yet? Well, Romans 1 tells us they do in some fashion. They know in some fashion, but do they they read yet? No. No. Have they been studying the scriptures at this long? No. I mean, if they've been raised in church, they probably recognize my voice, but that might be the end of it. And they don't, they don't know. They certainly haven't professed belief in God. They haven't repented for their sins. And yet, while they are hopelessly lost, while they are incapable of belief, while they are unable to understand, while they are a portrait of receiving help in every way, God chooses to place his name upon them. Friends, that's my testimony, and that's your testimony if you know Christ. There was a point in my life where I was incapable of saving myself. I was incapable of creating faith in my own heart. I was incapable of believing no matter how hard I tried. I was unable to save myself, and yet God came in, and in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit transformed me. And faith now flows out of my heart, not my own, but it is my own, but it's a gift of the Spirit that He's created in me. It's your story, too. We're in the middle of new member interviews where we get to hear everyone's testimony. The elders, we love it, don't we? Because we get to hear variations on a theme where that story is told in different ways. Baptism is a portrait of salvation seen, it's witnessed, it's watched. It's a play, it's a, it's a pantomime, it's, a, it's an opportunity to witness what salvation looks like with water, if you could see it with eyes. Now, realistically, we can't see the heart, only God can. I can't, I can't see when you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, I can look at the outward fruit, I can't tell. But in baptism, I get to see a portrait of what it looks like. A person who's incapable of saving themselves, having God's mercy poured upon them. Interestingly, the supper is an equally beautiful portrait of salvation. It's the Lord's Supper. And historically, in Reformed tradition, the way that we are, it's a table, it's not an altar. That's why you notice our furniture right there, it literally is a table. Because what we're going to do when we have that is we sit down together as a congregation and we share a meal together. Now, historically, again, the congregation sits on one side of the table and either the Lord or his representative sits on the other. That's why when either Brandon or myself are ministering the table, we're on the other side of it because we're serving as God's representative. Because who's seated at the table? It's God's people and the Lord himself. 
What a portrait of the gospel that, that men and women, boys and girls like you and like me, we know what's going on in our hearts. Friends, you know, you may lie about it, but you know the thoughts that you have in your head. And to think that the Lord would be so powerful to forgive sin and to change hearts and to renew minds and to transform people so much that the God of the universe would sit down and share a meal with you, to fellowship with you. And if that weren't clear enough, just in terms of the, the, the food aspect, we're told what the substance of the meal is. What are we sharing together? What are we eating well, grain and grape, yes, but they're, they're pictures of something. We're consuming Christ, not physically. His body's in heaven. We know where he is. But spiritually, we're consuming Christ. Why? Because what are we doing? We're fellowshipping with God. We're, we're having communion with God. We're having union with God. And the only way that we may know the Father is through the Son. So when we sit down at the table together to to feast with God Almighty. The only way we go into His presence is through Christ and Christ alone. You see, in both of these fashions, the sacraments serve as salvation seen. It's, it's witnessed. It's watched. You're able to discern it. Now, biblically and historically, the term that was most often placed on this was, it's called a sign. We get this amongst a number of other places, but Paul uses that word specifically in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. He's talking about uh, the old covenant into the new, and he says, uh, he received this sign of circumcision, the old covenant's sacrament. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness. Oh, there's that language, sign and seal. Next point in the sermon we'll get to in just a moment. A sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It's a, a portrait, that's what sacraments are, a portrait of the gospel. It's why historically, this is a fun one, Historically, in Reformed churches, you only had two colors, white and wood. That was it, right? Just like this pulpit. There was no art in Reformed churches because no art could compare to the art of baptism or to the art of the supper because salvation is seen in them, not in the paintings and the portraits. Now, not every church... Greece with that? I'm not mad at that. I'm just saying historically, that was the, the theological argument. But as with any sign, the emphasis is not on, on the actual sign itself. The emphasis is on the thing the sign points to. I've driven past a sign pointing to Carowinds almost every day, or at least six days a week, for the last 14, 13 and a half years. I see signs for Carowinds all the time. I'm a true confession. I don't think I've been to Carowinds as a pastor of this church, unfortunately. I don't know how that's happened. I see the signs for Carowinds, and they're lovely signs. But the signs for Carowinds are nowhere near as much fun as Carowinds itself. Likewise with the sacraments, the signs of the sacrament, the, the portraits of the gospel. It's the gospel seen. It's salvation seen. But it's something more than that. The important part, the focus, is what lies behind the picture that the sacraments actually do something for the saint. 
This is where our 1 Corinthians passage, we've already read a number of passages, but where our 1 Corinthians passage becomes so important. This is where Paul begins to explain to us what the Lord's Supper actually does. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay, that's a command I can get behind. I agree with that. I speak as to sensible people. You're sensible people. I'm sensible people. Okay. Judge for yourselves what I say. All right. Rhetorical question. The implied answer is very obvious. It's implied yes. The cup of blessing that we bless, so the cup in communion, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Grammatically, this question is really impressive because the word that he's using there for participation is the same word that we use for fellowship. It's the same word we use for communion. It's the same word we use for intimate relationship, like not marital intimate, but like deep relationship, deep friendship. So what he's asking is, is when we share the cup of communion, are we not actively communing with God himself. Of course we are. The bread that we break, is it not deep relational intimacy with God himself in Christ, in his body? Both of these questions, he's explaining what's taking place at the supper, is that even in breaking the bread and eating it and drinking the cup, we are not, we're not just consuming a couple of calories. We are intimately fellowshipping with God himself. Which is, again, where we get back to kind of where we started with that idea of mystery, because you're like, wow, I, I didn't feel that special last week. Really, I was doing that? Yeah, you were. It's just mysterious on how all of the mechanics of it work. If that weren't clear enough, Paul continues the argument. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Even when we're eating the different loaves, there's one Savior, Christ Jesus. And in consuming the bread in the various places where communion is served, we are all together being united to Christ And he contrasts this with regular meals. What happens after this? Well, what happens to food offered to idol? What happens to a non-sacramental meal? And what he presents is really this idea of being united to Christ or united to demons, which is a really uh, almost amusing reality. But in verse 21, he gets to the point where if you are in Christ, you are already united united to him. So when you participate in the supper, you are further confirming, further strengthening, and further being built up in that union already. It's why you can't participate in the cup of demons. Even if you did drink the wine of a cup offered to demons, it's not going to do anything to you because you're already united to Christ. Our sacrament does something, theirs does nothing. Because we're united to Christ, we're strengthened in Him. When we participate in the supper, we participate in Christ Himself. And interestingly, it's even presented here as Paul, how how we are to flee from idolatry. 
How do we flee idolatry? Take the Lord's Supper, that's how. That's how you do it. Well, you may say, well, that's easy for the Lord's Supper, but that, that's maybe a little bit harder for baptism for me to see. Well, that's why that first Peter passage was included. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we see the same thought process taking place. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that Jesus Christ might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions of what salvation is, right? The righteous being offered for the unrighteous. How beautiful. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to, is related to that salvation, what does it interestingly say? What is your translation? Does it say baptism now is a picture of what saves you? Or does it say baptism is a way for you to celebrate your commitment to God? No? Unfortunately, the grammar is exceptionally clear. There's no options here, friends. Baptism saves you. Now, does that mean, again, time to go buy some stock and super soaker? No. Because the moment of conversion may not be connected intimately to the exact moment of baptism. But what they're getting at, what Peter is getting at, is baptism actually does something. For the people of God, God uses it for your salvation. Now, I have to give a very, very important distinction. Remember how I said we have theological baggage? If you have grown up in the American church, particularly in the American South, when you hear salvation, you are almost certainly using the wrong word in your head. When you hear salvation in the Bible, you are almost certainly using the word in your head, regeneration. Get saved. And friends, that is not what it most often means in the Bible. When you read in the Bible and it talks about salvation, it talks about the entire process of, of knowing God and being with God, even building to the new heavens and new earth. I suspect that if you were going to be uber technical, you would find that word is used more in the New Testament to refer to being glorified in heaven than it actually refers to conversion. I'm not saying conversion, regeneration, not important. I'm saying get your, t- your Bible terminology correct. Baptism, which corresponds to the work of Christ, now is used by God as part of that entire salvation process. From the moment you were conceived and his universal calling to the point he effectually called you, as a justification, adoption, sanctification, even into glorification, he uses your baptism. And again, this goes back to that mystery. Right now, I, mean, I was baptized in a Methodist church years ago. How is God using my baptism? Well, friends, part of it is anytime I go to think about sinning, I can say, I belong to God. His name's placed upon me. I shouldn't act the fool like this. I'm not my own. I belong to him. He literally bought me with a price and has placed his name upon me. I'm his and he is mine. He uses baptism in that giant process of salvation. Further, I I think one of the great ways baptism is particularly used is when you get to watch it for someone else. 
And the church I interned at in, in seminary was wonderful. It was a church, smaller church that had lots and lots and lots of babies. Uh, I think it was probably at least 40% babies, it felt like. Uh, the nursery was never large enough. They really, they needed a nursery larger than the sanctuary, I suspect. It was one of those churches. So we had baptisms all of the time, and it was fun, like, learning from the senior pastor there that he knew, we all knew, actually, that he had to have planned immediately following the baptism for one of the elders to come up and pray a very long prayer of intercession because he knew every time he baptized a child, he would have to sit down and have a cry because it would just overwhelm him with the portrait of God's salvation and to know that he, as a man in his 40s or 50s or whatever he was, was the recipient of a salvation no less real, no less true, no less beautiful and wonderful, and no less given by Christ. So he'd have to have a moment to go compose himself. And it was, you could live, it was every time it happened the same way. He'd baptize the kid, start crying, hand the kid back to the parents. He'd go sit down. Elder would come up, thank them, send them down, and then pray. It moved him. It transformed him. It was part of his salvation. Not his conversion. It was part of his salvation to the end. You see, what we're building here is a logical argument that shows baptism and the Lord's Supper are promised by God himself. First Peter, Romans, other places. Promised by God himself to be used for your good even when you don't fully understand it. This is a fun one to think about. You know my testimony. I don't remember a time where I didn't know the Lord. I thank God for that. It's fantastic testimony. I don't know when he started using my baptism. It was far earlier than I was ever aware of it. I've never known days where I didn't know the Lord. He, he uses baptism in the Lord's Supper. These are extremely important, again, to get in contrast to other things. There may be other activities that are good for us, and there may be other activities that are good for us spiritually, right? Some of you, you love to go for a walk. It's your time to pray. Good, that's good. Go for a walk. That's good for you. Some of you find that you sin less when you're really tired. So you work really hard so you're not, you know, opportunities. Great, go work hard. Walking and hard work are good for your body, but they are not promised by God to be used to make you new. Word, sacrament, prayer, we're going to get to fellowship, are promised by God to do that. Now, what does that mean for the church? Well, it means that's why this church and the leadership of this church, in so much as we are able, is throwing all of our resources, all of our time, all of our energy, all of our effort, and all of our emphasis on word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship. Those are the things that we know God himself has promised to use. Going for walks, good. It's probably good for you. It probably helps your body. Not necessarily promised by God. Right? It's not. Word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship, they are. That's why when it comes time to talk about the ministry of Christ Ridge, you need to understand these are the things that, these are the hills we die on. 
not because we like them more than anything else, it's because these are the things that God himself has promised to pour out his power through. It also means pastorally. This is an important thing. Many of you, you're like, I I want to have a better Christian life. Praise God. I'll go ahead and tell you right now the secret to the Christian life. Word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship. There's a reason why we do them. These are the things that God uses to transform people. It's not that he doesn't use other things, and it does not that he doesn't use other ordinances, as even the larger catechism says. But these are the things that are guaranteed to work. Application one, therefore, go be busy in them. Be busy in the sacraments. How do I be busy in the sacraments? I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to serve them. I can only get them when the church serves them. Well, actually, that's a great question. How do you be busy in the sacraments? Well, one, you make it to church in so much as you're able when we have the Lord's Supper. It's an important thing. We do the third Sunday of every month. That's our military people are away on drill, first and second. We have sacrament on the third. That way, everybody's able to make it every month in so much as they're able. Be busy at being here on Communion Sunday. But don't just be busy in being here, for that's important, but also reflect on them. Spend some time and energy thinking about them. This is interestingly, I think, one of those topics that most Christians never think about. When was the last time you were going for a car ride, just had your mind kind of wandering through the things you were thinking about, and you spent time thinking about how baptism works for you? Most of us don't, unless we're coming from either Baptist or kind of Catholic or Episcopalian background, something like that. When was the last time we thought about how the supper is used to strengthen us and how we've changed from the last time we had the supper and how we've changed from the time 10 years ago when we were having the supper and how the Lord has been faithful to us and kept his promises. So much of these sacraments is an opportunity to reflect back on what God has already done in our lives, to be able to contemplate and to be built up with that. Third, and very quickly, you know, realistically, again, some of us, this is a real struggle. And I'm, I'm not blind to this fact. I'm not ignorant to it. Um, baptism, particularly in, this, you know, in the South, is a really hard thing. But again, interestingly, very few of us have spent energy and time actually asking the Lord, praying that the Lord would give us faith. Praying that the Lord would use our baptism or the baptism of others. Praying that the Lord would use his supper to build us up and to encourage us and to save us even unto the end. Few of us have spent any time reading in this and studying in this, and I have tons of resources. I have an entire shelf devoted to just baptism and the Lord's Supper in my study. If you've seen my study, that says a lot. There are a lot of books in there. I have one whole shelf devoted to it. Lots of good resources. If you ever want something to read, I will happily connect you with that. But lastly, and I think most importantly, and this is where I'd like to end, is to approach the sacraments always with a sense of excited generosity. That like when we, when we come to the, the water, we come to the, the grain and grape, to have kind of a, a sense of excited, of expectation of the Lord's generosity. That he uses these two things, and again, I just, I love the contrast. I don't even fully understand how but it's never been about me in the first place. (laughs) It's never been about you in the first place. It's been about a God who has promised to be faithful to his people 
And in these two activities, he generously gives himself to you. Maybe the next time we do this, we could all come with a little bit more excitement and expectation that in the table, I get to feast with God and upon Christ. And even as I go about my day, I belong to Jesus and I've had his name placed upon me. What a sweet mercy and a kind grace given by our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the various passages that we've been in Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, Romans, 1 Peter. We praise you for that and we ask, oh God, that you would give us faith where our faith is weak. For Christ's sake, amen.